Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 as we continue here in our series in the book of Colossians entitled Christ Above All. Christ Above All. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the row for you there, it's on page 983. Page 983. Let's go ahead and pray. And then we will read our passage together this morning. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to come and to worship and, Lord, to sing such wonderful truth. Lord, we're not singing things that are passing. We're not singing about things that just make us feel good. Lord, we're singing truth, things that are true whether we believe them or not, things that are true whether we feel like it or not. Lord, it's good for our soul to be reminded that we are not the judge of what is truth. Lord, but you are in your word. And we can cling to it knowing that it is more secure than what we think or what we feel. Lord, we thank you for that, for the truthfulness of your word and the hope that it is. Lord, help us now as we come to your word to be encouraged, to be challenged. Lord, use it to make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The title of this message is Then and Now. Then and Now. And I, I really thought of this yesterday as we were in here painting. As we were painting before we began, several people were taking pictures of what it looked like before we painted. And then we took pictures after we painted to see the difference before and after. We saw several pieces of evidence from years gone by as we were painting. Of course, there was the paneling installed in 1971, I believe. And behind the pan paneling, there's a lovely shade of mint green that I saw in some pictures from Merle and Violet's wedding, I believe. Uh, as, as, at Merle's funeral, a few pictures there, you can see the green uh, in the background. Little snippet, there's a little patch of exposed paneling behind the TV uh, but behind you up there, you may not notice that. You can't see it, but it's right where the brace is. And as we took the TV down to paint, we're like, oh, that really was ugly. <laughs> we're glad we did that. <laughs> right before and after of what it looked like once and what it looks like now. You can see the progress of your work. And sometimes you forget what things look like. Go back to pictures you have of you if you're a little bit older, in high school. Think, wow, I look like that? Wow, I was, I was that short, or I was that skinny, or I was that goofy looking? You know, whatever it might have been. To think what we once were, what something was, and then now. A change occurs. Something happens then and now. In this passage, these three verses here, 
Paul reminds the Colossians of what they once were. Back, back then, what it was like, what they were like, what their thinking was, and then what they're like now. And in this description of what they were once and what they are now, he reminds them of what happened, what changed, what was the means by which they went from being one way to being a different way. And then the call for them to continue on in their new life. <coughs> the idea of what something once was and what something now is, is used by Paul several times. Once and now. And specifically, he uses it several times to describe the impact of the gospel in the lives of believers. Of what they once were. And what they are now. And as we look here in Colossians 1, we see this, our big idea. The supremacy of Christ. As we've been talking how Christ is supreme and above all. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 20. How Jesus is all these things. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. All things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whatever it was, all things were created by him and for him. And in him, all these things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who is first resurrected that we will all follow. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is supreme and above all. He is glorious and mighty. He is our Savior. This is who Jesus is on a macro scale. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the firstborn of creation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the living Word. Jesus in all His glory, Paul describes in verses 15 through 20. But now in verse 21, he says, and you. You can look at something big picture wise, such as the supremacy of Jesus, and think it's something that's far off, that really doesn't impact you. But here, Paul is saying, Jesus is great and majestic and mighty and holy and so far and above and supreme over all things. But do you know what? He impacts your life specifically. Jesus is not just a God that's distant and remote. Jesus is a God who's personal and near. The supremacy of Christ impacts our lives personally through the reconciliation accomplished by his death. Great, Jesus is all these big things. What matter does it make for us? It makes all the matter in the world because it's through Jesus we are taken from death to life, from darkness to light, from hell to heaven. Jesus is not just some God out there supreme and overall. He is a personal God who has died for you and I, who has made peace by the blood of his cross and who has reconciled us through his death. So let's look here. As Jesus is supreme and above all, but he's also near to us in our lives personally through the uh, reconciliation accomplished by his death. Paul makes this transition here talks about the greatness of Jesus reconciling all things to himself. And then in verse 21, we see this switch. We're going to look at three things. Who we were, what God did, 
and how we are to live now in these three verses. First off, who we were. Who we were. Paul begins verse 21 and says, and you, very directly. There's no confusion here for the Colossians. Jesus impacts them because Paul says, and you, specifically Colossians, very direct. He reminds them who they were. You, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is what the Colossians were. They once were these things. That idea of once, who once, meaning before or previously, at one time, they were like this. They were alienated. That term alienated or something that's alien means foreign or separate. They were alienated from God. They were far from God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that we are separated from God. Yes, God is everywhere at all times, throughout all time. He is near and present with us right now. He is with you wherever you are at. He's with everybody because he's omnipresent. But this idea of being far from God is not in relation to God's nature and our nature, but rather our standing by way of fellowship, of, of by way of being separated from him. We were far from God because of our sin. We were far from him. We are removed. We know that God is holy. That is clear throughout the Old Testament as God fights for his holiness. And even here in the New Testament, as the writers again describe the holiness of God, God's holiness and sin do not mix. In Habakkuk, it says the Lord is, is so pure that he can't even look on evil. Right? Think of, of examples in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were kicked out of the garden. They could no longer be in the presence of God because of their sin. Entrance into the Holy of Holies, the, the physical dwelling of God on earth, once a year, specifically by the high priest, after he'd been washed and cleansed physically and ceremoniously. And if you enter without being cleansed, you would be killed immediately. Think of Uzzah, right? The ark was falling, and Uzzah went to catch the ark. And what happened to him? He died instantly. You might think, how could that be? In a sense, Uzzah thought that he was less dirty than the ground. When in fact, he was a sinner. The strange fire offered uh, uh, by Nadab and Abihu as they were consumed in the altar in an unworthy manner. All these instances, and then you go to Isaiah 6, and Isaiah has this vision of God seated on his throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. As the angels surround his throne, covering their feet, covering their eyes, and with the other Two wings they fly, giving praise and honor to God for his holiness. God is holy. We are not. Therefore, we are separated from him. And not only are we separated from him, but look at this next phrase. We are hostile in mind. We are not indifferent to God in our sin. Okay, our sin, the fact that we reject God, the fact that we disobey God. Our sin separates us from God. But we are not indifferent to God. 
you meet somebody who says, well, I haven't made up my mind about this whole Christianity thing, or I don't know about God. Yeah, he's cool, okay, all that. No, 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 there's no middle road here. If you do not know Jesus and are not redeemed by his blood, you are hostile in mind to God. Now, there are varying degrees of hostility, but our base nature is that we are hostile in mind. We are, in a sense, enemies of God. We are angry at God. We are his enemies, hostile in mind. Have you ever had somebody who's been hostile in mind towards you? You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) They have it out for you. Whether right, wrong, or indifferent, they don't like you, and they're making it clear. You know what that's like. Perhaps in our own sin, we have some hostility towards somebody. I hope not. By God's grace, we can overcome that. But without Jesus, the Colossians are hostile in mind. And not only in their thinking, but in their doing. Doing evil deeds. Doing sinful deeds. They were more than likely worshiping false gods. Worshiping the pagan gods of Greece and Rome. Committing terrible acts of idolatry through sinful sexual activities and and practices and offerings at different temples. They were doing evil deeds. The Colossians were far from God. They hated God and they did sinful, evil things. And you might be thinking, great, I'm glad the Colossians found Jesus. Amen. But the greater reality is this situation that the Colossians found themselves in is a situation that every human being finds themselves in. In Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he's describing how he's, he's preaching the gospel and why the gospel is necessary because men have rejected God. They have given up seeking after God, and they seek after themselves, things that bring them pleasure, sinful things. And so God has given them over to their debased minds. And everyone has sinned, the Jews and the Greeks, Jews and the Gentiles. And it comes to this culmination in Romans 3, (coughs) where Paul quotes a psalm. And from that psalm, there's Romans 3.10. It says, there are none who are righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. No one in their human nature seeks after God. We are dead spiritually. And a little later on in Romans 3, 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person who has ever lived, save one, Jesus himself, has sinned against God. This is not just something that the Colossians face, but it's something that every human being has faced since Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. It's what you and I face. It's what every person born faces. It's what every child in the nursery and in children's church right now faces. We are all, by nature, children of wrath in Ephesians 2. We are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who we are. That's who we are. Every person is an enemy of God. We are against God. 
you might say, well, okay, certain people I see are definitely against God by their activity and their words and the things that they stand for. But I know this really kind lady just down the road. She doesn't go to church, doesn't really like God or the Bible, but she's so kind. I understand that. There's a level of God's common grace and there's a certain morality still in our area of the world in which kindness is appreciated. Doing kind things for others is appreciated. I understand that. But as you take a step back and look at that person or an individual who's perhaps gone to church that doesn't preach the gospel, but they go to church every Sunday. They are still alienated and far from God and in need of Jesus and hate God. Every single one of us is alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The people that we need to have a heart for, compassionately sharing the gospel, though they may be kind and and gracious people, if they don't know Jesus, they are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds against God. That's who the Colossians were. And if you know Jesus Christ today as your Savior, that's who you once were. That's that cringy photograph from the yearbook. Oh, why did I think that was a good hairstyle, right? Why did I think that was cool? Why did this? Why did that? Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, you look back and it just makes you cringe. But it's a sobering reminder for us of who we once were without Jesus. And it reminds us next of what Paul's going to say to us of what God has done. Who they once were, who we are without Jesus. But what God did is our second point. What did God do? They and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He, who's the he? There's some discussion as, is it God, the Godhead in general? Is it Jesus himself? It seems that Jesus would be the better referent for the he, for the pronoun, because of the following statement of, in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus, he is now reconciled. Jesus has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We have been reconciled by Jesus through his death. He has now. This is important. What did you and I do to reconcile ourselves to God? Nothing. What has Jesus done to reconcile you to God? Everything. He has now done. This is important. God is the agent of salvation. He is the one who's planned it, who put it into process, who has secured it, and who makes it real in our lives. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has done this. Nothing that you and I could do, only what Jesus has done. This idea of reconcile is to drive or to force together, to bring back or balance. We were alienated. We were far off. But now we've been brought near. We've been reconciled. We are hostile in mind towards God. But now, Romans 5, we have peace with God. We were doing 
evil deeds, sinful things. But now, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship in Jesus Christ. We have been created for good works. This is what God has done in us and for us. He's reconciled us. The means of this reconciliation is Christ's death on the cross. In his body of flesh by his death. This term flesh here is often used, and it's often used in a negative context, right? We battle against our own sinful flesh. This is not that use. This term of flesh is referring to a human body. That's important because it demonstrates for us that Paul believes that Jesus' death on the cross was necessary and important. Jesus had a literal human body, and that literal human body died on the cross, He reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Paul is reminding the Colossians of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. It's this death that has secured the reconciliation for us. The material is contrasted with the immaterial here. We'll see here in chapter 2 that the false teachers were... Uh, promoting this type of spirituality that really focused not on the material, but on the immaterial. The spiritual, being a hyper-immaterial, hyper-over-spiritualized approach to God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 these false teachers are talking about all these things that are just kind of floating out there. Jesus literally died. Very physically, he died. A real person, a real death by which God worked. It was a full and proper sacrifice, as Hebrew explains, the final perfect sacrifice that is made covering for our sin so that Jesus, as the great high priest, is now sat down at the right hand of God, complete. What God has done, he has reconciled us through the sacrifice of his own son. And the result is this, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The only way in which you and I can be placed before God the Father on his throne with holiness and being blameless and above reproach is through what Jesus has done. In order to present us holy and blameless, all these words are used to describe the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Think of a lamb without spot or blemish. That perfect sacrifice. That's that's the wording that Paul is using here. He's using all these words that would remind the Jewish believers, if there are any, of the Old Testament. But these words are used of any sacrificial system. Holy and blameless. Look at that. We go from being far from God, being angry at God, doing sinful things that just rub dirt in God's face, and now we are blameless before him. That is amazing. That's an amazing thing that we go from being far off and filthy and sinful and now we are holy and blameless and above reproach. No one can bring a charge against you. That idea of being above reproach. No one has any claim. No one has had any claim against you. You may be standing at the throne room of God and somebody comes up, I know that guy. I know some things that he did growing up or this activity or this or that, that and God the Father says, he's above reproach. 
well, how can you be above reproach? He's, he's done all that. Yes, I know he's done that, but look at what Jesus has done for him. You're above reproach, what God has done. Here we see the, the work that only God can do, from death to life, from enemy to friend, from son of the devil to a child of God. We are far off and we are brought near through what Jesus has done on the cross. And the result is that we are holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. It's the idea of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. We are a living sacrifice. We have been declared holy and blameless before him by Jesus. And the result is to be holy and to bring glory to a holy God. Who we are, what God did, and then third here, how are we to live now? Paul continues in verse 23, and he uses this interesting phrase. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's interesting. Paul talks with clarity. This is who you were, Colossians. He talks with clarity what God has done. But now he says, if, if they are holy and blameless before God, if indeed they continue in the faith. This is an interesting statement here it's a conditional statement right and if then if you do this then this let's make it very clear here as we look at one set of verses we compare it with the rest of scripture our salvation is purchased by us wholly through the blood of jesus christ on the cross there's nothing you and i can do to earn our salvation and when we have put our faith and trust in jesus christ fully and truly nothing can separate us from the hand of god right john 10 we're in the hand of Jesus. Jesus is in the Father's hand. No one can take you out. We are secure. We are safe. We have truly believed in Jesus Christ. But we also understand that the reality of our faith and salvation is played out in the way in which we live our lives. And our faith is to be demonstrated by how we live. No one can simply claim that they believe in Jesus Christ and live however they want. That is not the gospel. That is not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is what Romans 6 says, where people say, well, we can believe in Jesus and now how live however we want because we have the grace of God. And Paul says, God forbid, never, no. Because the grace of God in Jesus Christ completely changes our thinking that we no longer want to live as we once were, but we want to live holy and blameless. And so what Paul is saying here is that you were far off and you've been brought near and you're holy and blameless if it is made manifest in your life. Not to keep yourself in the sense that God saves us, but we have to hang on for dear life. No, but rather you will make your salvation known through your faithfulness to God and the gospel. This is important to the Colossians because people were being overcome with false teaching and they were drifting away from the hope of the gospel, which he, he uses that phrase. And Paul is saying, a question is, are you deceived and are you being led astray or were you not truly redeemed in the first place? 
there's that sense in which there is a conditional, this idea of perseverance and preservation. The call here then is to make your salvation clear, your calling known by which and how you live your life. You were once far off and now you are brought near and you are these things if you see it played out in your life. If indeed you continue in the faith. If you continue in that idea of faith is the revealed substance or doctrine or the word of God, continue believing in Jesus. I'm sure most of us could name several people who at one point were born again, or they would claim to be born again, and maybe they were faithful in coming to church, but over time you see how they've drifted away, and they have not continued in the faith. Some perhaps have wandered off into indifference. Some have wandered off into indirect uh, conflict with what the Word of God says. Something that's happening now is this phrase called deconstruction. Perhaps you've heard of it. Deconstruction is a term used by people who grew up in the church, often good gospel-preaching churches. But now as they are growing up, they're realizing in their minds that they had all of this forced upon them, and so they are deconstructing, taking apart their faith. But the thing is, this deconstruction, which they glory in, really, I believe, just demonstrates that they weren't truly redeemed to begin with. that they did not truly know the saving love of God through Jesus Christ. They have not continued in the faith. And you can say, how can you say that? I don't know their, their hearts. I can't see their hearts. I can't see anybody's heart. Only God can. But through the activity and evidence in our lives, we are given the responsibility as a local church for one another to inspect one another's works and how we live. And as you see the pattern of people's lives, you can say they're claiming certain things, but I would be hesitant because we don't see them continuing in the faith. But Paul says, if you continue in the faith, if you are faithful, he doesn't say if you are perfect. (laughs) None of us are perfect. We will have seasons of sins and struggles. We will have areas in which we need to grow. But over time, is your faith strengthened in Christ? Do we continue on? even though your sinful flesh is fighting for something, and you're saying, no, I know that's not right, and Lord, help me fight against it. And these periods of sin could, it's more than a day, it could be a season. What does that look like? I don't know. All I know is David was a man after God's own heart, and David did some really terrible things. (laughs) But yet, he returned back to the Lord. And that might be the case for some loved ones in your own life, who may truly believe but are overwhelmed with sin in their own lives, and Lord is, the Lord is still working on them. But perhaps they have not truly been redeemed. But he says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. These words are building words. They're talking about firm, like a, a firm foundation, right? And they remain firm, built on the rock. And then the negative is not shifting. Not shifting from what? The hope of the gospel. We are to grow in the gospel, not grow away from the gospel. This truth of who God is and what he's done for us in redeeming us through Jesus Christ is the simple truth which we start with in our Christian walk, but it is also the fount of which every aspect of our Christian life flows out of. We are to not shift from that hope. Do not put your hope in other things, in other human beings or other ways of thinking, but the hope that is found in Christ. 
Paul says that they had heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. Now he's, he's taking a step back to remind them the universality of the gospel, that it's for every person, that it saves every person who responds in faith. It's proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Remain firm. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. We see here Paul reminding the Colossians of who they once were. Who were they? They were sinners. They were alienated. They were far from God. They were angry at God. They were God's enemies. They were doing evil deeds. But I love the phrase in Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy. Here, he uses a phrase, he has now, to describe what God has done. Through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, we are reconciled, we are brought near, we are redeemed. And we are called to live now out that faith, remaining faithful and stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The hope of what Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection for you and I as sinners. Let us not shift from that hope. But let it be the center of our being, the the, the guiding light, the point in which we say, okay, Lord, this is who I am. (laughs) I'm in Christ because of what he's done for me. Lord, let me cling to that. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. He loves us through his death on the cross. Whether we are 5, 15, 50, or 92, let us not shift from that hope of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who can make us friends of God while we were enemies of God. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are far from God. You are his enemy. You deserve to go to hell because of your sin. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that threats of judgment and punishment should be real in your life. And it's a warning to you that that's what awaits those who die in their sin. But understand what God has done for you that he has sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to die on the cross, to take your punishment upon himself, to die, to suffer, to be buried, and to be raised again on the third day. And now he bids us to believe in him, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that the only way our sins can be forgiven and that we can be made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ has done. How can I stand before God? Why would God let me into heaven? Because of what Jesus has done. Not even that I've believed. (laughs) But it's the object of what I believe. It's Jesus. Jesus. The one who is supreme over all, who impacts our lives personally through reconciling us through his death. If you don't know Christ today, please Turn in faith to Jesus Christ. If you do know Christ as your your Savior, remain steadfast and stable. Keep faithful. Continue on. The Christian life is hard. It's compared to an athlete and to a farmer and to a soldier. All difficult occupations. Things that require sacrifice and service and dedication. 
Continue on. Don't give up. Keep going. Be filled with the patience and joy and endurance that comes from knowing Jesus. Remind yourselves of how great Jesus is and how worth it it is to follow him. Because remember, who you once were is not who you will be. Remember who you once were and remind yourselves of who you are now because of what Jesus has done. Let us continue in faithfulness and following after him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the reminder of who Jesus is, of what we were, Lord, of how you've delivered us through your great love and mercy and grace. Lord, I pray for those here who may not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray that your word and your spirit would show them their sin. Lord, I pray that they would confess and repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, if they have questions, Lord, I pray that they would talk to someone who knows Christ, talk to somebody who invited them or, or myself or Pastor James, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, may we be reminded of who we were without Christ. May we glory in who we are now because of Christ. Lord, we are holy and blameless, above reproach. We are in Christ. We are accepted in the beloved. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy that's been shown to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please stand. We're going to...